Mormon. Uh, I said we were going to kind of conclude this little section of Mark, and I, I thought we would. Uh, but as I was prepping this week, I ended up saying, well, we've got to divide this in half again. So uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you want to find it in your uh, the Bible in front of you, uh, we will uh, kind of dig into this text. We're going to be looking at the story of Jairus, Jarius. I'm going to call him Jarius. I know it's saying it wrong. I don't care. But is it Jarius? Is it actually said Jarius? But that's how I always want to say it. Jarius or Jairus? Uh, well, I'm going to do either Jairus or Jarius. I, I can't switch it every time it became a distraction to me because uh, apparently I can't walk and chew gum or think of a new pronunciation for a name every time it comes up. Uh, but there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, we're not putting the text on the screen for now uh, because I want you to look in your paper, paper Bibles. I want you to bring your Bible with you. If you have a phone Bible, I guess that's all right, but uh, don't go on Facebook <laughs> uh, or whatever. Don't do the Wordle. Uh, it's a hard one today anyway. Um, and so we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that, that you would be with us today. I pray that you'd be with me. Help me to uh, focus on the Word. Help me to focus on uh, preaching the Gospel, on, on uh, just the, the glory and the grace that you have for us today. Um, the opportunity to know your Son more. The opportunity to know you more. I pray that you would guide us. Uh, help us to lean on you. Help us to 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 be your people um, as we hear the word preached. Anybody who's got hard spots in their heart, I pray that you break it up. And I pray the Spirit would minister to all of us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, Doolittle, Mr. Doolittle, who did not talk to animals. I didn't look it up, but I'm fairly certain I, he did not. However, he did fly planes. And he's famous, very famous, for one particular event in history, uh, anybody know? The Doolittle Raid. Do Raid, which happened right after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Doolittle led a uh, group of pilots flying, I think, B-25s or B-24s, and they attacked mainland Japan and bombed it. And they didn't have enough gas even to get home. They took the planes off of aircraft carriers and, and did their bombing, and they came back uh, and, like, ditched their planes and like uh, like made their way home during the war through China, uh, and it's kind of an interesting story. But apparently, Doolittle is was famous before then. It's just that that act was so big, nobody remembers the other stuff. Um, in like 1922, I don't remember exactly. I'm hoping I got that date right, but it doesn't really matter because nobody's going to fact check me. Probably, don't. Um, <laughs> In 1922, he set the world record for the fastest crossing time of the United States. He was the first person to cross the United States by airplane in less than 24 hours. Um, and he was able to do it like he had planned on doing this thing where he would fly at night and he would use the light of the moon to help him fly. Because up until that point, everybody flew by sight, right? Like the instrumentation was very... Uh, archaic and and not very advanced and so he did this thing where he flew uh and his plan was to to fly at night and to rely on the the moon and all that and um as he got into his flight uh something happened because nothing ever cooperates uh the thing that happened to him was storms 
uh, lots and lots and lots of storms. And so he had stretches of time where he was flying completely blind for hours and hours and hours where he couldn't see where he was going. He couldn't see, um, like if he was turning, he couldn't see anything. And his plane was unusual because he had bank and turn indicators installed. Um, it was one of the first planes to receive this particular feature. And based on the instruments on the panel in front of him, he was able to fly through storms without seeing where he was going. Because, um, And he, I think he was quoted, I was reading about it, he was quoted as saying, you know, hey, you, we usually flew by the seat of our pants. But, you know, I couldn't do that. And so he flew by his instruments without being able to see the world around him. Um, as we dive into the story of Jarius and his daughter, like this, this little second, last little bit of this text, um, we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about faith in circumstances where maybe faith doesn't make sense. Last week, we talked about like the woman who had been bleeding and how she was kind of at the end of her rope. And actually, Jairus, Jairus, as he approached Jesus, humbled himself and did something kind of crazy publicly because he was at the end of his rope. And so as we dive into the text, dang it, I didn't start my timer, so uh, we're flying blind. Um, uh, as, as, I, as we dive into the text today, understand, like we, last week we talked about prayer, we talked about relying on Christ, we talked about going to Christ, looking for something, and how Christ looked for people. Um, this week we're going to be looking at faith. And faith is a tough topic, and Mark touches on it repeatedly in, the, in his book, but here we get something particularly awesome. And so we're going to look at this. little background here. Um, this is Peter's gospel. It was written by John Mark. It is Peter's preaching notes. Uh, and like in the early church, when uh, Peter was getting kind of older, there was discussion about who would record Peter's, uh, Peter's material. And John Mark, who's mentioned in the book of Acts repeatedly, uh, is the guy who basically stepped up and said, I'll do it. And so he listened to Peter preach, and he took notes, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so this is Peter's account. I've mentioned it a couple times. It is a huge deal this week. Everybody got it? This is Peter's account of what happened. Huge deal. And you'll understand when we get to the end why. So in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we encounter a bunch of people who are in hopeless terrifying situations. The disciples in the boat, the storm is sinking them, and they are terrified, and they are afraid, and they're in a position of hopelessness, and when they finally call out to Jesus, he saves them. And the man who was possessed with demons, who had been possessed by demons for years, and lived in the tombs, and everything was like screwed up about his life, like Jesus saved him when no one else could. Uh, last week, we talked about the hemorrhaging woman, the woman who um, had been bleeding for 12 years, who couldn't marry, who couldn't be out in public, who couldn't anything, and had seen every doctor available, and it only made it worse. And, like, she's in this position of hopelessness to the point that she takes a significant risk by going out in public, mixing into a crowd of people, approaching Jesus, and touching the hem of his robe, hoping to be healed. Okay, and we're going to dig into that again next week. There's a whole lot of symbolism. There's a whole lot of Old Testament stuff. I really wanted to talk about it this week, but if I was going to do that, I would shortchange us on Jarius, or whatever his name is. Um, Jason R. Us. Uh, so, and then finally Jarius, who 
comes to Jesus. He is an official in the, in the synagogue. He's a president of the synagogue. And he is a man of stature, a man of elevated means and esteem. And like in Oriental culture, esteem and honor was a huge, huge deal. And so everybody looked at this guy and like, like they looked up to him. And for you to lower yourself, for you to bring yourself to a lower position was to lose face and to lose honor. And it was a big, big deal. It was so much of a big deal that people would often kill over that sort of thing. Um, I read an interesting essay saying that the reason that David had um, Bathsheba's husband executed, everybody in town probably knew that she was pregnant by him. And he basically killed the guy because he, like, the guy wouldn't let him off the hook. And, like, to save face, he everybody knew, but to save face, David killed him so he wouldn't have to, like, confess his sin to this this man whose wife he stole. Okay, like like people... Face and honor was such a big deal. And so for Jairus to approach Jesus in public, bow down at his feet and, and ask him for help was humiliating. But he's a guy who is at the end of his options, at the end of his rope. And Jesus immediately goes with him. On the way, he gets sidetracked because he starts dealing with a hemorrhaging woman. And he's there for a little while. It's not a two-minute exchange with a hemorrhaging woman. It's probably a bigger chunk of stuff. And that delay results in... Jesus not getting there on time as Jairus' daughter passes away. And so um, jumping into our text, the first big idea we're going to come to is in this entire situation, Jesus knew what was possible. Everybody got it? Jesus knew what God could do. He knew what was possible. He knew the full range and like power he had at his disposal. And he knew that hurrying up probably didn't matter. Everybody got it? Everybody else around him, like, saw the circumstances in front of them. They were flying by the seat of their pants. They were looking at the sky around them and deciding it's time to turn, it's time to fly higher, it's time to fly lower. They were flying by sight. Um, Jesus knew the bigger picture. And so he didn't need to fly by sight. Right. And like like so we're going to pick that up uh, in chapter five, verses thirty five and thirty six. And I will read some of this as we go. Uh, so, you know, that uh, chapter five. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, this seems like a really simple moment, but there's so much going on, and it's cool. Watch this. First off, like, he's come to Jesus looking for a healing. He came with hope, with faith, that the stories he had heard about this guy would be true. And what's happened, essentially, is he has been told, hey, guy, That hope you had, it's over. No more hope, no more nothing. It's over. She's gone. And so like, like he came with hope and it was taken. It was, it was the end of that. There is no more hope. There is no more nothing. Um, and, and he's there like with these people who come and talk to him and everything else. And Jesus hears it. Um, there's an interesting thing that happens there. Here's the news. The word used there is like, it's one of those words that can have multiple meanings. Everybody with me? Like um, fly. 
Uh, we talked about this yesterday at TJ's house. A fly can be an annoying insect. It can be a thing you do on an airplane. It can be your zipper. It can be um, a fishing lure. It can be all kinds of stuff, right? It could mean I need to go quickly and leave. I uh, must fly. Uh, fly, you fools, meaning hire the birds or whatever. Um, so this word has multiple meanings. Specifically, it's got three meanings, and it's translated three different ways. Um, one, it can refer to overhearing something that you weren't supposed to hear. That is, I'm reading the ESV. Uh, that's how the ESV translates it, okay? Meaning just to overhear something that wasn't meant for your ears. The second way that it can be interpreted or understood or translated is to pay no attention or to ignore what was said. Everybody with me? So it's like my kids when I say clean your room, right? The whole family when I say this is my castle because I am its king. Yeah, whatever, right? Like... <laughs> um, it, it can mean just to ignore what's being said or to refuse to listen or to discount the truth of something, meaning I hear what you're saying, but what you're saying is just not true. What you're saying is a lie. Um, there is no consistent, like this is one of those weird words where if you jump from translation to translation, it's translated like all over the place, probably because all three are what's happening. Jesus overhears something not meant for his ears. He's saying, hey, yeah, that's not what happened, right? Like, you can, you can listen to them, but it's not true. This is not what's actually going to take place. Or you could just be ignoring them, like, outright, because um, Jesus knows something more, where everybody else is looking out the window of the cockpit, and they're looking, and they know where they're going, and they know what happens next. They're trusting their eyes. Jesus knows the instrument panel. He knows the potential. He knows the ins and outs of the situation. He knows what is going to happen. Um, and so, but overhearing... What they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now that phrase, do not fear, only believe, should actually read, because it's in this weird Greek construction, I know y'all love it when I go into Greek construction and grammar, but to summarize, what it means is continue to, to believe or continue to have faith. Um, he's not saying, you know, he says don't fear, but continue to have faith. Um, and so this guy has come to Jesus. He has faith that Jesus, he trusts, he has hope that Jesus can do something. And instead of throwing away that hope and replacing it with fear that this is the end, I can't do anything about this situation. I now have to face the world without my daughter. Instead of doing that, Jesus instructs him, trust me, don't be afraid. Don't fall into this hole. Trust me. Now, that is a hard place to be. And I want to make a point here real quick. Again, Peter's gospel, right? In a couple of chapters here, we have a spot where Peter and the disciples are in a boat and they see Jesus walking on water. And Peter says, hey, if it's really you out there walking on water, let me walk to you. And he gets out and he walks on water, probably remembering the circumstances that happened in the last chapter. Like, hey, last time we were in a boat and we were sinking, he told us that we had no faith. And so like this time... I'm going to have real faith. I'm going to step out. And he walked on water with Jesus. And then he stops and he starts looking out the windows. And looking out the windows, 
he sees the storm and he sees the waves lapping around him and he hears the wind and he knows like, oh my gosh, number one, I shouldn't be able to do this. Number two, the circumstances around me are terrifying. And all of a sudden the circumstances overtake him and he fears and he begins to sink and he cries out to Jesus and Jesus grabs him, pulls him into the boat and Jesus asks him, why did you doubt? Because that's basically what he's telling Jairus, right? Like, trust me, don't doubt. Trust me, I'm going to take care of this. Don't be afraid. The storm's around you. Everything's getting out of hand. Don't worry. I got this. And it is a command. And it's presumably, presumably, pres- we can presume that Jairus did this. He has a choice at that point to trust the instruments or to trust his eyes. Um, now, typically, like during Doolittle's time, what you would do, you just jump out of the airplane. Got it? Like, so you can't see where you're going long enough, you would parachute out because it was safer to parachute out in a thunderstorm than it was to fly blind like that because you could just hit the ground or you could turn and turn down or whatever because you suddenly became disoriented. Um, and that's where Jairus is, right? Jairus has the choice between trusting the bank indicator, trusting the turn indicator, tr- trusting the altimeter or whatever, or trusting his eyes. Um, that's a big deal for us. Why? Because we face that all the time. The call of the gospel is the call to trust that in Christ we are forgiven our sins. In trust we should die to our old selves and be born again into this new life. That is a faith journey. Like, to be born again is a product of faith. It is a product of the Holy Spirit working and, like, then we follow Him. And it's easy to doubt. You know why? Because the world's screwed up. Because the world is stormy. And also because the world will tell you 900 different things all the time about what you should or shouldn't believe or should and shouldn't do or you should believe some of this stuff about Jesus like, but not this other stuff because like nobody in the modern world believes that. Um, we live in the storm. And we have to learn to trust by flying by our instruments. Can you bump me to the next slide, please? So the folks who were most invested in the circumstances themselves... Watch this. The people who are most in the moment, the circumstance, but not the people who are in Jairus' spot. These are the guys who just saw no hope. They had no future. They had nothing but doubt. They had that. Um, When Jesus walks in to heal this little girl, he takes with him only the people who trust him or are most invested, who come in with faith. And so only those with faith are able to go in and see the miracle. Um, and that's a big deal. And you'll understand why in a few minutes. Um, but we are in 37 to 40 here. So if you want to read along in your Bible, um, probably you'll read it better than I will. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the home of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, a quick pause. These are professional mourners. It was generally considered the case. Actually, no, it wasn't even generally. Like, you had to hire mourners for your funeral, right? So, like, if you had a funeral... The minimum that was socially acceptable was two flute players and one woman who would cry loudly nearby. 
right? Like you hired people to do this. And these, like when you would do carrying the body, like the mourners, their job would be to travel with the body to the tomb and they would be around and crying and wailing loudly and throwing dirt on themselves and playing instruments with sad songs and everything else. Like, like this is a thing. And so he arrives there, this guy's well-to-do, and there's a crowd of guys who are there doing their job, right? And you ever, you know, you're doing your job and somebody comes along and takes your job away from you? Because that's pretty much this, right? Like, um, these guys did this for a living. They cried at funerals for a living. Um, and so these professional mourners, they, like Christ arrives and he sees these guys crying and weeping and wailing and probably playing musical instruments and everything else. And like this big hubbub is taking place. Um, so he sees the commotion, the people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus uses this term sleeping, and it's not there in the 19th century. There was this like crazy argument that came out of German rationalism, like where they said, yeah, she was actually just sleeping and Jesus woke her up. But here's the trick. The professional guys who show up to deal with dead bodies looked at the little girl, they examined her, they considered her condition and said, yeah, she's dead. She ain't mostly dead. She's dead, dead. Right? Go through her pockets and look for a loose change. That was, I'm sorry, it was from the Princess Bride, nothing? Yes, I did. Um, it wasn't in the Bible. Um, so, they arrive and Jesus says, hey, what are you doing? She's asleep. But these guys, like, they're not in the business of being fooled by sleeping people. They're not in the business of being fooled by, oh, he's not dead yet. They're not in that business. They're in the business of making money on death. And these guys knew what death was. They knew what it looked like. They were not fooled by mostly dead. And so Jesus says this, and they respond, and they laughed at him. Now, there's this great line in the Old Testament uh, that he turns my mourning into, into dancing or into laughter. And it's sort of ironic because he does turn their mourning into laughter because they have no idea what's going on. They're flying by sight. They're flying by the seat of their pants, by the world and the circumstances around them. And they laugh at him. They, they make fun of him. They're der- derisive, I think, is the, the weight of the sentence, derision. Um, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went to where the child was. So who does he take? The father and mother, the ones who are watching the instruments, the ones who are having faith and trusting, and then the disciples who already have faith, but they're there to learn. It's important. They're there to learn because somebody along the way had to fly by instruments the first time, Right? Somebody along the way had to be Doolittle in a storm looking at the little, like, turn bank indicator and deciding, yeah, I'm not jumping out of this airplane. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to do what needs to be done here. And so he takes these folks in with him. Uh, last big, next big idea, he raises this little girl from the dead. Next week we're going to dig into that deeper because this is in theme with this section, like, This is a sign that he's actually God. 
And there's a clean, unclean thing that takes place here that I really wanted to preach about this week, but I have to kick it down the road two weeks because I wanted to talk about this because, like, shortchanging this text would be wrong. Um, so just be aware, like, like, he's about to raise this girl from the dead. He's about to do something that only God can do, according to the ancient Jews. Only God had control over life and death. This is a sign that every Jew would have seen and said, that's a divine work. So, we're going to jump into 41 and go to 43. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. That's in Aramaic. There's probably actually a Hebrew phrase behind it, but that gets really complicated. I'm not getting into it. The important thing to understand is, for no particular reason, the guy who's writing down Peter's stuff takes a quick moment to jump into Aramaic, right? Like, originally the Jews spoke Hebrew until they went away to Babylon, Right? And they went away to exile. And when they came back, they had adopted a different Semitic language, which was Aramaic. And it was the common tongue. It's probably the language Jesus spoke. It's probably the language the apostles spoke. They all knew Greek because everybody in the world knew Greek. And there's a pretty good chance that most Jewish folks knew Hebrew as well. Right? Like they didn't speak it regularly. It kind of became a dead language very quickly until, I don't know, I, a few, like a century ago or something, I don't know, I read about it and I forget exactly what it was. But it was a dead language like Latin until it was revived and now people speak Hebrew, but it's not even the same Hebrew. This is Aramaic and nobody speaks Aramaic anymore. But he takes a moment to quote him, Talitha Kumi, um, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. The word Talitha, by the way, and this just caught me as kind of cool and, and touching a little bit because it gives you a little glimpse at who's as to who Jesus was, Talitha means little lamb or, uh, or, or something along those lines. It's almost an affectionate, like loving, like fatherly term. And the Greek translation they offer is like a proper woman is the word girl, but little is a diminutive form. So like a, a little lady or little lady arise. It's kind of cool, right? There's an interesting like sort of play on the wording because we're getting a glimpse there of like who Jesus is. We're getting a glimpse of what kind of man he was, how he carried himself, how he dealt with people, how he talked to people, the fact that he loved children. By the way, a quick note. So we have a contrast. I'm going to go back. The woman who is bleeding is at the bottom of the social spectrum. Children were considered to be pretty low on the scale. You loved your kids. You rejoiced at having them. But children, like, were not all that well-respected. And they were not, like, high up on the honor scale or anything else. Because the older you got, the more respected you were. Hooray. Um, I'm old. What do you want? Uh, And so, like, children were not very high on the honor scale. And so we have somebody, a Gentile, not any position amongst the Jews, you have the bleeding woman who is no one, and you have the child who is low on the scale too. Because Jesus deals with all these people who are low down. It's kind of cool. Um, and kind of reassuring for some of us. Uh, probably should be for most of us. But he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking around, for she was 12 years of age. By the way, kind of a cool thing. The woman who was bleeding was bleeding for... 12 years. Little girl is 
12 years old. And it's just a parallel between the two moments. I don't actually think there's a hidden meaning in it. It's just kind of a funny thing. Um, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So the fact that he has her eat, here's why this matters. Ghosts don't eat. That's it. For the ancients, if a person ate, they weren't dead. They weren't a spirit. They weren't anything else. Demons didn't eat. Spiritual things didn't eat. Who ate? Living people eat, right? Um, and so the fact that he has them eat is like, an indicator that, yeah, this girl was alive, right? Like she was genuinely alive. She got up, she walked around, she ate, she is alive. And this is a miracle, and it's amazing. Um, now watch this. All the way up until this point, there is no hope. Everybody with me? There is no hope at all. She is dead. There is nothing to be done. You do not. Like there ain't no coming back. Except, except that God can do anything. God can take any, anything and make it right. He can make the woman who is socially dead alive. The girl who is physically dead alive. The Gentile who is spiritually dead alive. Me, dead in my trespasses and sins, alive in Christ. Any one of us dead in our trespasses and sins, alive in Christ, revived through his death and resurrection. We are resurrected with him. And then actually one day in eternity, we will all rise and face judgment. And for those of us who are in Christ, we will rise to eternity, to glory, to God's presence. And it is amazing. But had Jairus listened, right? Had Jairus listened, had he said, all right, I'm looking around and there is no hope. It's time to bail out. It's time to give up. That would have been it, right? There would have been no continuation to this story. There would have been no brought back. For any of us, um, any of us, we are going to face moments in life where we have to trust that Christ can heal something or that tr- Christ can work through something or that Christ can fix something, or that he can bring about his glory in some broken moment in our own lives, in the lives of others. And we have to make choices about that, right? Like, we have to make choices. Will I hide my sin forever? Will I hide my brokenness? Will I hide from Jesus and trust my eyes? If I confess, I'm in trouble. When I quit drinking, I, I, one of the first things I was told to do, this guy was working with me and helping me go through the process and very early on, he said to me, all right, now you got to go tell your wife everything. And I was like, yeah, if I tell my wife everything, she's going to divorce me. And I think uh, it is a sign that, like, the miracle happened, and she did not. Um, but I remember driving home that night, and I, the lights were off at the house. And I'm like, all right, God, if she's awake when I walk in, I'll do it right now. Otherwise, I'll just take it as a sign I should put it off. And I, I walked, you know, drove up, and the lights were off, you know, and walk in the house, and she gets up and, and meets me. Oh, I heard you come in. I got out to talk to you. And I sat down, and I told her everything. And on the way in, I said, I don't care what happens, you know, God. I don't care if my wife leaves me. I don't want her to. I don't care what happens. I have to be right with Jesus. I have to be right with Jesus. I need to come back to Christ. It doesn't matter if my whole world falls apart. It doesn't matter if I lose my job, if I lose everything. I just want to be right with Jesus. And I 
I said, you know, if it means confessing, I'll confess anything. I'll, I'll own it all. And it didn't end there. It kept going. It was loads of fun. But the more I confessed, the more I showed my sin into the light, the more it was eaten up and destroyed and burned away by God's holiness and his grace. And I became a different man. And it was awesome. But in my life, that was one of those, like, I have to fly by the instruments right now. Like, wisdom tells me, hide stuff from your wife. Right? Wisdom says that. Worldly wisdom. Not God's wisdom. God's wisdom says, trust Christ. Anything you have to do to be close to Christ, you do it. Um, Prayer. uh, Loving your enemy. Treating people better than they deserve. Forgiving people who have done unforgivable things. Whatever it is, we do those things because it is flying by the instruments, not by our eyes. And this is one of the hardest things sometimes about being a believer, is trusting Christ when everything is awful. You know what I mean? So, I have one last text here. We're going to jump to it. It's in the book of Acts. Um, last point that we're going to draw out here is, the kingdom continued through the students and the witnesses. And this is a big deal. It's actually a lot of fun. And I... Oh my gosh, I want to do a whole sermon just on this, but I can't. Um, so in Acts chapter 9, we're going to jump over there. Acts is like uh, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, okay? So turn to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9. And what's going on here is Paul has just been converted. And I think there's some there, stuff there, actually, but I, I'm not going to include it today. It's just interesting. Um, so Paul has just been converted, and Peter starts traveling and preaching. Okay, and so the story picks up with Peter and Peter encounters a man named Aeneas and Aeneas has been bound to his bed for eight years because he's paralyzed. And Peter walks in, commands him to get up and walk and he gets up and walks. But note this it is a guy who is many, many years sick with no hope of recovery. Sound familiar? Sounds a little like the woman, Right. And so then after that, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, who was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, um, since Lydia or Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Sound familiar? A young young lady sick in one story, an old woman in the next. They go and they get Peter. Come here. Come here quickly. And so Peter comes here quickly. So Peter rose and went with them. By the way, no discussion, no anything. Jesus doesn't discuss it with Jairus. He just goes. And when he had arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Now, they're going by her Greek name over and over again, but they made it a point to stop and say her name was Tabitha, the Hebrew name, right? But then they start calling her by her Greek name because it's probably the name that she mostly went by. And so this woman is there. She's surrounded by a crowd of mourners who are wailing and showing the things that she had done for them. Sound a little familiar again? It's almost like it's a parallel story. 
But Peter put them all outside by himself and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, Peter spoke Aramaic. And so when Jesus said, Talitha, Peter said, Tabitha. So, Talitha kumi, Tabitha kumi. So, Jesus, like Peter literally says what Jesus said, like changing one word or one letter, commands her to get up. And she does. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, all, excuse me, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and, stay, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. I want to hit a pause point because Simon the Tanner. <laughs> Tanners were considered ritualistically unclean. There's a whole lot to talk about with that. I'm not going to do it. But Peter is at Simon's house when he gets the vision about the animals. And God says, take and eat. There's all these unclean animals. And Peter's like, no, I've never eaten an unclean animal. And I'm not about to start now. And God says, anything I declare clean, you can't call unclean. Now take and eat. And then in the very next spot, he goes to Caesarea by the sea, which is a Gentile town, which was completely unclean. It had no Jews, and he converts the Gentiles there, and the mission to the Gentiles begins. The unclean is made clean, which is the whole theme in chapter 5 of Mark. The connection there is, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he went around and interviewed people and collected their eyewitness. And so Peter's account of these events mirrors Mark's accounts of the events, which are Peter's accounts for these events. This is not an accident. As students, as people who follow Christ and grow in faith, and we watch our brothers and sisters around us grow in faith, right? We watch them do acts of faith. Um, We're surrounded by a crowd of believers and witnesses and encouragers. As we watch that, we grow too, and we learn We learn, like, a little like fathers are supposed to teach their sons, honestly, right? Like fathers teach their sons because the way you act towards your wife, the way you act in your work, the way you act in your personal life, the way you act toward Jesus, your kids are going to watch that and they're going to learn more from it than they will from the words you say. Any day of the week. They will imitate you all the way up until they're adults. Peter watched Christ and he imitated him. We are in a lineage of that. We imitate Christ and our kids will too. We imitate Christ. We learn to fly by the instruments. We memorize them. We know them. We love them. We live them. We write them on our hearts. And that changes us. My challenge for you today, first off is, in those moments where everything seems hopeless, like to stop and look. Look for his direction and have faith. Trust God in places that it doesn't make sense to trust him. Trust him with your, with your hidden secrets, with your sin, with your brokenness. Trust him in those areas. Trust him with everything in your life because Christ didn't come for a piece of it. Not this piece, not that piece. He came for everything you are. When it rains, when it storms, when you feel blind, press forward and do his will. Pray and ask. Talk to other believers who know their stuff and lean on them. Forgive 
Like, be like Jesus. And as you go out, live it. Because your kids are going to watch you do it, and they're going to do the same thing. When your wife annoys you, love her anyway. Because your kids are going to watch her, watch you, and they're going to do the same thing toward their spouse. Right? Or expect their husband to do it to them one day. They will imitate you. Be Jesus in those moments, and you'll never go wrong. I know this is kind of an all-over-the-place sermon, but like the power of what's being said here, the power of what's in this text, continue to trust, ignore the circumstances. God can do anything. In life, in death, in resurrection, in eternity, God can do everything and anything. Does it mean he always does? No. And that's kind of cool, too, because sometimes we trust him knowing that even though he slays me, still I will praise him. Peter was crucified upside down. I'm sure he had trust that God could save him, but he knew that he would glorify God no matter what happened, and that's what he did. So let's pray, and I'll let you go. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day, and thank you for the example of, of Jairus. Thank you for your son who, who carried our sins, who, Lord God, when we look at our hearts, we might see our brokenness, we might see our wickedness, our, our rebellion, but still we have faith knowing that your son died for us, knowing that we are forgiven and made new through him. Help us to trust him. Help us to walk in him. Help us to imitate him in every way possible. Lord God, make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good Father's Day, guys.